Okay, let's get started this morning. Um, we are a family-integrated church, which means that we involve our children in the worship and don't separate them and divide everybody up. So that's a very positive thing that our families can be together as we study the Word of God, but that creates um, uh, other issues which are fine and it puts a responsibility on the parents to make sure the kids are paying attention and not being a distraction. So guys, I'm going to ask you like I always do to please behave and be quiet because I am recording this message I am using these to put up online to help instruct other believers. So I want everybody to be on their best behavior because when you talk out and when you make a, 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 a distraction, it's going to be recorded and everybody's going to hear it all over the world. So I don't think you want to hear people all over the world hearing you misbehave or crying or things like that. And then I may call on some of you, as is our fashion, to read some scriptures and so I would just ask that you try to read very loudly and clearly, more so than you normally would, so we can at least get it on tape. Um, I mentioned last week these sermons will be online at my website for you to listen to. If you miss a Sunday, we are going exegetically through the book. So if you miss, you can go back and listen to what was taught and not feel like you're out of the loop or left behind. Also, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes and actually automatically download these episodes to your iPhone or whatever and listen to them at work or whatever. Okay. I also want to draw your attention to a website you might find uh, interesting as we study this book. ClarenceLarkinCharts.com okay? Clarence Larkin was a Baptist preacher here in America that was born in 1850. Died in 1924, and he had a keen uh, ability to rightly divide the word of truth. And he wrote some very interesting books, many of which are out of print, and illustrated the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, uh, the plan and purpose for the ages, the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. He illustrated all these in amazing charts that you can download at this website that kind of lays out God's plan and purpose through the ages and lays out His prophetic program and give you kind of an illustration of what we're talking about. There's numerous charts that refer directly to the book of Revelation. I've read Larkin's works for years and it's kind of amazing that he wrote in a time in American history when people in general feared God, there was great missionary activity and revival, but he had a keen insight to be able to understand what the last days would look like and he didn't even live in that period of time. So when you read or look at these charts, you need to remember some of these are almost 100 years old. And it's amazing to me how they correspond to what exactly is happening today. And like us, uh, Pastor Larkin understood that the Scriptures needed to be interpreted literally in their historic and grammatic context. He understood that... Um, um, uh, Revelation and, and prophecy would be fulfilled, fulfilled literally just as uh, older prophecies have been fulfilled literally. And he understood that um, uh, signs and symbols and interpretations thereof uh, have to be carefully handled. And so he approached the Scriptures much like we would in terms of our theology and those things we talked about last week. Uh, so last week we discussed, or I kind of introduced the book of Revelation to you. We talked about the title, uh, and we talked about some characteristics of the book. 
And just a little background on John the Apostle and the historical context in which he wrote. And I also talked a bit about why the book of Revelation was slow to be accepted by the church, quote-unquote, officially, and why those things should not keep us from believing and putting authority in the Word that God has clearly preserved. So, I want to wrap up that introduction this morning um, with basically what have been termed four methods of interpretation. There's basically four ways in which this book has been interpreted and is interpreted today. Of the four methods, three of them have serious problems. And one of them is just common plain sense. And it's helpful to know these things because you're going to run into people that have weird ideas about what's taking place. Some of them Christian leaders. I preach with people on the streets who preach a solid gospel message. But when it comes to their eschatology or their understanding of end times, it just seems to be way out there. And it's because they fall into these camps that were held by different groups of Christians in the past and they feel like they've got to stick right with it for tradition's sake. So we're going to talk real briefly before I actually get into the text about four methods of interpretation that you'll see when people approach this book. Okay, The first one is called the allegorical method. Who knows what an allegory is? What's an allegory? Anybody? It's a literary. It's a literary uh, uh, device. Characters or events represent or symbolize ideas and concepts. Okay, it's an allegory. Is a story or a recap that's not necessarily literal. It's meant to. Uh, explain or explicate a grand idea. Okay, So the allegorical method of interpreting Re- Revelation would basically see the book as this huge symbolic metaphor of the conflict between good and evil. Or between God and Satan. It's not prophecy per se. It's a big metaphor. It just shows us the eternal battle between good and evil. This method would be dualistic, which means that good and evil are almost presented on an even scale and that all of history is good versus evil. There's a problem with what that dualism per se because the Bible is not a story of good versus evil. You see, God is above all of that. You know, Satan never had a chance, never will have a chance to actually overthrow God's plan and purpose. He thinks he does, but God exists above that. And Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow. So a dualistic mindset is philosophical. The ancient Greeks and Plato and and all of these guys believed in that, but that's not a biblical worldview. But basically, the allegorical method looks at the book of Revelation as metaphoric prophecy. In other words, it's Symbolic. It's a huge metaphor and it cannot be understood in terms of specifics. Now, if this method of allegory is true, then the blessing John gives in first, verse 3 of chapter 1 about those who read and hear and apply the book makes no sense. If this method is true, then the warning John gives at the end of the book about those who add 
or take away from the prophecy makes no sense. An allegorical interpretation of this book would have had no specific value whatsoever to the readers in John's day. Because it would have been an overall picture speaking in generalities, and it wouldn't have benefited them in terms of the things they were living and seeing in their day. But a lot of people tend to follow this. They tend to believe that Scriptures are dark symbols and sayings that cannot be understood. And that's very common and typical in other religious books. I mean, if you read the Quran, you get an exercise in randomness where this is going on all the time. In the Hindu uh, uh, writings, the same thing. I was called this week and asked a few questions about an article that was posted on a Christian news <coughs> in a Christian news media outlet. They wanted to have my reaction to the fact that there's a Hindu group in America seeking to place Bhagavad Vitas, which is a Hindu writing, in the hotel rooms alongside the Bible. Because this group has seen that the Bible, by being placed in hotel rooms, has had an effect on people. So they want to raise awareness of Hinduism and place this Hindu religious book in the hotel rooms. And I was asked, what are your thoughts on this? And I said, well, I don't, I don't really have a problem with that or consider it to be a threat to the Bible. In fact, if you were to place the religious books of the world beside the Bible in a hotel room and somebody honestly seeking truth uh, were to compare them side by side, then they would see very easily and very quickly that there is no comparison. The Hindu writings are no threat to the Bible. If anything, it will expose the fact that Hinduism is nothing more than a collection of myths. Disneyland characters going back and forth. Harry Potter stories that make no sense and are nothing but allegory. So, by all means, put them in the rooms. I think it's funny because the motive behind such a uh, strategy cannot be conversion to Hinduism because Hindus don't seek to make converts. In fact, you have to be born into Hinduism. So, the motive can't be winning converts. It's probably to protect Hindus from leaving their religion and following the Bible. That's seen as a threat. You know, a lot of people from India or South Asia that come to America, you know, it, it'll, it's discovered actually move away from their traditions and superstitions and many people come to Christ. And I think the Hindu uh, uh, religious organizations see this as a threat. But nevertheless, the Bible's not in that same is not in that same category. So put them beside each other. But that is a method of interpretation. Secondly, there's what's called the preterist approach to the book of Revelation. That term preter or preterist is a Latin word. It comes from a Latin word that means past. The preterist would see the book of Revelation as basically a, a record of the conflicts between the early church of the first century and Rome, Judaism, and paganism. So basically, Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. It's all, it all happened in the past. You know, it's a symbolic way of describing how the early Christians had to suffer at the hands of the Jews, the pagans, and the persecutions of the Roman emperor. According to the Preterist uh, interpretation, the year A.D. 70 is very important. Anybody know what happened in A.D. 70 in Israel? The Romans under General Titus actually came into the city, besieged it, led people away captive, destroyed Herod's temple, and ransacked the city. And since that day, 
Israel in terms of having control of the whole city of Jerusalem and having a temple and a sacrifice and a priesthood is, is, has not existed. The book of Hosea tells us that God's people Israel would exist many days without a king, without a priest, without a temple, without a sacrifice. And those days began in A.D. 70 and it's never, it's never uh, uh, resumed. So the preterist would say that most of these prophecies are centered around Titus, that he was an antichrist figure, and that that uh, Rome was, you know, kind of, you know, you know, the greater, you know, a, a bigger symbol of antichrist, and there was these problems in the first century, and it all happened in the past. Now, if that's true, then the Book of Revelation would have no specific value to us today. For the allegorical interpretation, it would have no value to John's readers. For this interpretation, it would have no value to us. This would be metaphoric history. So everything is a metaphor and it happened in the past. The allegorical method would say everything is a metaphor and it's happening in the future. It's, it's an overbearing theme of good versus evil. Now, I find it very interesting that John states at least seven times in the book of Revelation that he's writing prophecy, not history. He's writing prophecy. And then the preterist would look at things and they would try to interpret prophecies in light of history. And what you end up coming up with is all of this conflicting, all these conflicting ideas amongst preterists about what something means or what it doesn't mean. And then these interpretations will ultimately break down. For instance, in Revelation chapter 12, we are given a picture of the dragon, which is Satan, and the woman clothed uh, and, and surrounded by the stars, and, and, and that's the picture of Israel. And Satan is overthrown by Michael and his archangels and kicked out of heaven. And he's cast down to the earth. The preterists would say that that was fulfilled at the cross. That, that Satan lost that battle at the cross and was kicked down to earth in about 27 A.D. And woe unto the people of the earth, for he's angry now, and this has been going on for 2,000 years. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that right there in Revelation 12, Satan is identified as the accuser of the brethren that accused them before the throne of God day and night. Well, who are the brethren? Is that Israel? Is that the dead? Who are the brethren? It's the church. Was there a church in AD 27 at the cross? When was the birthday of the church? When, did the church, when was the church born? At Pentecost. Pentecost didn't occur until after the cross. So how could Satan be an accuser of brethren that didn't per se exist until Pentecost and be kicked out of, the hev out of heaven several years before Pentecost even happened? So you see how the interpretation in light of all of Scripture breaks down. Another interesting interpretation that the preterists would use is in Daniel chapter 9, God gives a very specific prophecy about how many years it will take to accomplish His plans and purposes with Israel. It's called seven, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. We're going to look at this later. But basically, 70 weeks of years or 490 years God would use to finish everything He was going to do with Israel. And as you read that prophecy, you see that 69 of the 70 weeks are already fulfilled. 
But there's one week, a period of seven years, that is yet future. Now, because Daniel's prophecy only applied to Israel, there is no place therein for the church age. And so we are living right now in a period of time between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. And I'm going to explain this later. It's a church age. It's a time when God is pulling out a people from amongst the Gentiles for Himself until such time as the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, as Paul says. At that time, God will turn again to Israel and complete His plan and purpose for them as a nation. All of these prophecies in the Old Testament about Messiah reigning as King, this, that, and the other. But we are living in what I call a great parenthesis in God's program as concerns the Gentiles. And the preterist will look at Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks and he will take a clear reference to what is Antichrist and apply it to Christ. And he will argue that these 70 weeks are already fulfilled. And he may even point to A.D. 70. There's various interpretations. And that these weeks are fulfilled. But the problem with that is if you look at Daniel's prophecy, there are actually six things that will take place when this prophecy is fulfilled. And it's almost like the preterist ignores that. God has purposed 70 weeks to deal with Israel to accomplish six things. In Daniel chapter 9, and like I said, I'm going to have to explain this prophecy in detail later because we can only understand the book of Revelation, but it's one of the most important prophecies in Scripture. But it says here in chapter 9, verse 24 of Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to do these six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision in the prophecy, in other words, to complete the vision in the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, is there still sin in the world? Is there, still, is there everlasting righteousness dwelling amongst us? Has everything in the Word of God been finished? So how could that prophecy have taken place in the past? See, the preterist interpretation of prophecy always breaks down. So just like the allegorical method, we would say this method doesn't stand up. It's wrong. Now it is interesting that the preterist method of interpretation was actually espoused originally by a Jesuit priest in the 1600s. It's very Catholic. In other words. So if everything's happened in the past, then we are almost living in an age when it's the church's responsibility to grow, 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 and then usher in a golden age, or as the New Age hippie would say, the age of Aquarius. There's another method of interpretation called the historic method. Now the historic method is almost a blending of the first two. It would see Revelation as mostly history with some unfulfilled prophecy. Some future prophecy. This method of interpretation is inevitably what I would call post-millennial. That means the church would be in the millennial kingdom. We are the ones responsible for taking over the world, ushering in peace, ushering in the golden age, and at that time, Christ or, or the Spirit of Christ will come. In other words, the historical method would see the church as being responsible to grow, 
to spread the Gospel through political power, and to usher in this millennium. Now again, this is primarily Catholic, and the Catholics have used this method of interpretation to justify world domination. They seek to find parallels and revelation to events in church history, and just like that second method, they always break down and it causes all kinds of contradictions. Now during the Protestant Reformation, when Luther and Calvin and these other men broke away from the Catholic Church and spoke out against the evils of Catholicism, the Reformers embraced an an interpretation such as this. They looked at the world around them and they saw the Pope as the Antichrist. They saw a period of tribulation as a period when the uh, Catholic Church was persecuting the Reformers and true believers. They saw the Reformation itself as the beginning of that triumph over evil. And so they tended to interpret Revelation specifically in terms of the days in which they were living. Now those that hold this position today would typically call themselves Reformers and they would hold to Reformed doctrine. And so they would take what the Reformers were interpreting as happening in their day and just embrace it and ignore what's happening in our day and say, well, most of that was history. And and most of these people believe that simply because Calvin and Luther believed something. There's a lot of people out here that, you know, it's not so important what the Bible says, it's important what John Calvin had to say or it's important what Martin Luther had to say. And we know that that type of uh, an approach to truth is wicked. We know that many of the men these people uh, put such faith and trust in would shun such an attitude or rebuke such an attitude, or roll over in their grave if they could hear it. But nevertheless, this historic position is, is, is pretty Catholic, and with the Reformers, you have to be very careful, because though men like Luther and Calvin were used by God to proclaim the Gospel, and to bring back justification by faith into the church, these men came out of Catholicism. And it's really hard to break from the traits of your spiritual mother. And so sometimes they held on to traits of their Catholic mother like infant baptism. Like the idea of a state church instead of independent local assemblies that were not under the authority of other churches. So this is an example of a trait of one's Catholic mother. So basically the historic method would be metaphoric prophecy or history and prophecy. Most of it was in the past. Some of it's in the future. We really can't know. And therefore, it had no specific value to the believers of John's day. And it has no specific value to us today. And therefore, we shouldn't spend a lot of time studying it, reading it, applying it. Now, all of these methods of interpretation have a common problem. There are prophecies in the Scripture that have already been fulfilled. In fact, if you look at the Scriptures, almost two-thirds of the Bible is prophetic in character. And of all of these prophecies, about half of them remain unfulfilled. Half of them have been fulfilled. Half of them remain unfulfilled. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, I often preach this on the college campuses, there were over 40 specific details about His life that were prophesied 
long before he was born. Now, when these prophecies were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, were they literal? When it said that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, was he born in Bethlehem or was Bethlehem a symbol of some uh, state of mind or a symbol of some uh, uh, earthly kingdom? It was literal. So all of the prophecies in the scriptures that have been fulfilled were fulfilled literally. They weren't these, they weren't metaphoric history, they weren't metaphoric prophecy. So these methods of interpretation would take a position that, well, and many of them do agree that fulfilled prophecies were fulfilled literally, but revelation can't be that way. It's a metaphor. And so I find it funny that many people who would espouse one of these positions, some of whom I preach with, would stand on a college campus and argue for the authenticity of Scripture by drawing attention to fulfilled prophecy, by drawing attention to the literal fulfillment of details in Christ's life that were prophesied years before. But when it comes to the last days, they would say these prophecies aren't literal. They're dark metaphors or symbols that we can't understand. So in my opinion, that's a profound contradiction. If the first coming of Christ was fulfilled literally, why wouldn't the second coming be fulfilled literally? There's nothing in Scripture that would indicate it to be any different. In fact, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ are so tied together in Old Testament prophecy, that they can't be separated. They're not two different things. They're tied together. Just as sure as His first coming transpired, His second coming will happen. And the first coming without the second coming would not have taken place. So that's the problem here. That's why we can just X all this out. Now there's a fourth method of interpretation, and this is the way that I'm going to approach this book. It's called the Futuristic Method. The futuristic method of interpretation when it comes to Revelation would see this book as prophecy. And because it's prophecy, it has specific value to believers at all times. In John's day, in the corridors of history, and today. And it would have special relevance to those, relevance living to those on earth in the last days. Now I believe we're living in the last days. There's many indications from the Old Testament and the New Testament to point to that as being true. Therefore, <coughs> this book has special relevance to us today, especially when we see what's happening in our country and the world. You know, Israel has, has come back to the land, a very important threshold in prophetic history. The Middle East is a flashpoint today. All of these things tell us this book has specific relevance, and that's why we're going to study it. So, the futuristic interpretation of Revelation would see it as prophecy. Yes, there are symbols, but the symbols are explained either right there in the book or throughout Scripture. So, they're not dark metaphors that cannot be understood. So, these are just kind of a background of how people approach the book, and it's kind of interesting to try to understand where people are coming from so that when you encounter these views you can understand the framework. Okay, now, why do we interpret the book of Revelation as prophecy? Well, it says it's prophecy at least seven times, number one. And number two, as I mentioned last week, we believe as a church that the most important thing 
in all of truth, in all of history, where God's foremost purpose in all things is His glory, His glorification. God's foremost purpose in creating the world wasn't to redeem men. It was to glorify Himself. And the redemption of man is just a part of that. We believe that. So when we interpret the Scriptures, we see that everything that's communicated as being for God's glory. It says there in Revelation, I believe it's in chapter 4, that by God all things were created in heaven and earth and they were created for His pleasure. To be created for God's pleasure means to be created to bring Him glory. They weren't created for man's pleasure. It's created for God. We believe that this is the foremost purpose in all things. And therefore, the gospel is not man-centered. The coming of Christ isn't man-centered or based upon man's timelines. Coming to God isn't on man's terms, it's on God's terms. And that's what should govern our life and our reading of the Scriptures because that is the worldview communicated in the Scriptures. We also, when we interpret Scripture, imply, apply what I, I would... I use a big word here, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means a way of interpretation. We would apply a literal, grammatical, and historic hermeneutic. In other words, we don't read something without taking the historic context into consideration. I wouldn't... St- I wouldn't teach the book of Revelation unless I gave you the historic context in which it was written. That helps us understand what John is trying to communicate. We also place individual Scriptures in the entire context of the Bible. In other words, the Bible was written for the common man. Do we believe that God gave His Word to all people or just to people with a special knowledge? No, it was given to all people. The Catholic Church would say that the common man doesn't have a right to interpret the Scriptures because he's not smart enough. Therefore, he shouldn't even have the Bible in his possession. That's why the Catholic Church slaughtered people who were instrumental in translating the Bible into various languages or were caught possessing the Bible during the Dark Ages. William Tyndale, who gave the English-speaking world a Bible in English and that was preserved down through those, the years in those English translations in which the book was refined and completed in the King James Bible, which is 75% Tyndale's work. William Tyndale was pursued by the Catholic Church and burned at the stake for making the Bible available because the Catholic Church would say the common man can't understand the Scriptures. He has no right to possess it. Truth comes from the church and the church's interpretation of Scripture under the auspices of the Pope. Now, we see that as wicked. We see that as the spirit of Antichrist. It's in contradiction to the revelation of Scripture itself. But Tyndale said, if the Lord will allow, I'll make sure that even the plowboy here in England can understand and apply the Scriptures better than the Pope. And through his work, God saw it done. When Tyndale was dying, his last prayer was, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. He was burned at the stake. The Lord did open the eyes of the King of England. When the Puritans went to James I and said, we need a standard English translation for the churches, King James approved it. And this body of Puritan men, many, whom, many whose parents had suffered persecutions at the hands of Catholicism and the state churches, some who had experienced it themselves, sat down and were used by God to take the work of Tyndale and Coverdale and Matthews and, and the work of others that brought this into being and standardized it for the English-speaking world. Because these men understood that the Bible was written by the com- for the common man and therefore could be understood by the common man at the, with the help of the Holy Spirit. We believe that. And because we believe that, 
our interpretation of the book of Revelation must be futuristic. We must see it as prophecy. Now, <coughs> that doesn't mean that everything is exactly easy to be understood, but I think we can rest assured in an important truth. I'm gonna, I, I put this on my Facebook page this morning. I'm going to pull up the quote. It's a quote by the Baptist preacher Larkin. Let me find it here. It says this, There is no form of evil doctrine or practice that may not claim apparent scriptural sanction and support from isolated passages taken out of their context. But no erroneous doctrine can ever find support in the Word of God when the whole united testimony of the Scriptures is weighed against it. That's an important statement because these methods here, the allegorical, the preterist, the historic, are known for taking isolated Scriptures out of their context and ignoring the whole counsel of Scripture, particularly Old Testament prophecy. Because we believe that isolated passages do not form doctrine or theology and that the whole counsel of Scripture must be considered, then by default, we have to interpret this book as futuristic. We have to interpret it as prophecy. We have to interpret it as in agreement with Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. We have to interpret it as being in agreement with the prophecies literally fulfilled at Christ's first coming. So, this would be our position not because we think it's best, but because of how we approach the Scriptures. We approach them literally. We approach them as written for the common man. We approach them dispensationally. And I talked about what that means a little bit last week. Okay, now, because Revelation is prophecy, we have to look at the book and how to divide up or understand the outline of the book. Somebody read Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Read it loudly. Write these things which thou hast seen, and things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. John was told to write three things. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. You see, my friends... Jesus Christ gives us an outline to this book. We don't have to look at it and create an outline. That is the outline right there. That is the theme of the book. John was told to write things that he has seen. And we'll see that at the end of chapter 1, he had already seen something, which was the glorified Christ. He was told to write the things which are the letters to the seven churches. And he was told to write the things which would be after future. Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book. So there's our outline right there. And that outline as given by Jesus Christ to John through a heavenly messenger means the book is futuristic. So I'm going to explain a little bit more of that when we get to that verse. But basically, the book would break down in this fashion. The things John hast seen... would be chapter 1. The things which are would be chapters 2 and 3. And the things 
which are hereafter would be chapters 4 through the end of the book. Very simple breakdown. And as you can see, that means the entire book, most of the book is futuristic. Now, you know, when we say a futuristic interpretation, that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire book is something in the future. John had these visions in the past. The churches that he wrote to in that day were actual churches. But everything points to future fulfillment of prophecy. Now there's another way we can break down these things. And that brings, I'm just reminded of another point. Another reason why we have to interpret this book in the future is because we don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. We don't believe that God is finished with Israel and that the church is some spiritual fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. So that forces us to interpret the book in the future. Another way we can uh, look at this, and this will kind of help you as we go through the book, Revelation chapter 1 took place in John's day. John was on the island of Patmos and he saw a vision. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 would be the church age. Seven representative churches. Churches that existed in John's day. Examples of the types of churches that exist in all days of the church age. And a prophetic foreview of church history. The things which are. Then... Revelation 4-19, through 19, you would have describing the tribulation period. How long is the tribulation period? Anybody know? Where do we get that, form, that, that, that number from? Seven years. Anybody know? It's not in the book of Revelation. Daniel's 70th week. Okay? I know a lot of this is probably going over some of your heads. But I will explain it later. It's important for us to know these things because God, God has given us these things to look for. Then you'd have in Revelation chapter 19, in the chapter you'd have a specific event. What happens there? Anybody know? Christ's second coming. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign, prophesied plenty of times in the Old Testament. In terms of a time frame, we're given that specifically here in Revelation. And then in Revelation 21 through 22 5, we have events contemporary with the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth or eternity. That's what E means right there. And then Revelation. 22, 6 through 21, we're back to John's day, where John is given a concluding exhortation for believers in terms of the importance of this prophecy. So you begin in John's day, and then you move down through the church age, all of which, or most of which, was future from John's perspective. You get into the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. And then we're transported right back to John's day with some concluding exhortations for Christians from all periods of time in the church age. So the book follows 
a very simple timeline. It's chronological. John's day, telescoping through all of the church age into the future, eternity future, and then coming back to John's day for a concluding exhortation to be given to all Christians living in the days that will come. So that's very simple. It's a very simple breakdown. Now the chapter and verse divisions were not originally part of the Scriptures. In fact, the, the verses as we have today were laid down by a, a man in the Middle Ages, uh, I mean not in the Middle Ages, but in the 1500s by the name of Robert Stephanus who gave us an edition of the Greek New Testament that was used by King James translators. And he did most of these verse divisions while on horseback uh, traveling in Europe. But they make sense by and large. But they're not part of the original Scriptures and they don't all the time go together. But this naturally breaks down for us as we read the book. So do you want to know what the theme is of Revelation? It's chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Any questions on that? So we have a framework as we start to exegetically look at the text.